days, Titus 3, 1 through 7, we're looking at the subject of regeneration today. In fact, the title is taken from verse 5 of our text, and it's simply the washing of regeneration. And the word regeneration is simply, as Aaron was making reference to, it's, it's another way to talk about salvation or being born again. And although it doesn't occur too often in Scripture, in fact, only one other place besides here, there's a thread running through Scripture, especially in the way of word pictures. Specifically, the dead being raised to life, like in Ephesians 2. And coming from darkness into light, like in 1 John. And as we made reference to being born again, like in John 3, when Jesus was having his conversation with Nicodemus. The word, the Greek word for regeneration is the word palingenesis. And as we said, it's only used one other time in Scripture. And that's in Matthew 19, 28, when Jesus was talking to the twelve, to the twelve apostles, and he says this. He says, Truly I say to you, in the regeneration or the palingenesia, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this, therefore, makes a reference to the fact that not just certain men and women will undergo regeneration, but also the fact that at the end of time, all of creation will undergo regeneration. All the decay that you see in creation, natural disasters, the mar of sin on creation, all of that will undergo regeneration as well. So let's read this passage together from Titus. And Paul says to Titus, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, as we begin the study today, we immediately see Paul's exhortation to Titus to remind them one of the main jobs of a pastor is to put his people in remembrance of the things that they already know. We're by nature forgetful people. And we have to be reminded over and over by way of review, by way of exhortation, to do the things that we've been exhorted to do. You can't just say something one time and leave it. You have to constantly put folks in remembrance of those things. And that's one of the main jobs of a pastor. And so the first principle we see in Titus today uh, is, is Paul re 
reminding Titus to remind the Christians in Crete of, and that I want to remind you of today, is that your good works act as evidence of your faith in Christ, and it advances the gospel. Now, these things in the first two verses here that we're going to look at all flow through the grid of regeneration. Now, I know it gets uncomfortable when you start talking about works in any way, and I want to put you at ease with the fact that all of these things flow through that grid of regeneration. However, I do think that they're legitimate principles for the Cretan believers and for us today because the people of Crete struggled with authority. I mean, you can look back in chapter 1, like in verse 10, where it says, Paul is telling Titus, there are many who are insubordinate. Then he goes on a couple of verses later and he says, one of their own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So the people of Crete struggled with authority. It was a struggle of the apostles all through Scripture in the New Testament epistles. It was a struggle to keep people submissive to authority and to leaders. You see that thread running through all the epistles. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon comments, you see they were a rough, wild, rebellious people in Crete. And Christianity comes to civilize, to sober, to sanctify, to save. So not only do they struggle with it, but we struggle with this too. We struggle with authority. We struggle with submitting to our leaders. And if we have such a hard time with submitting to our leaders, then what does that say about how we're going to submit to one another? The command for us to submit to one another. It's not going to happen, is it? So his first exhortation is to be submissive to rulers and authorities. What rulers and authorities? Well, in Romans 13, the call goes out to be submissive to government. In 1 Peter 2, you see the call going out to be submissive to emperors and governors. You see the call going out in Scripture for the wives to submit to their own husbands. You see the call going out in 1 Peter for the youngers to submit themselves to the elders or to people older in age. For the children in 1 Timothy, you see a call for the children to submit themselves to their parents. In Hebrews 13, you see the call for the body of Christ to submit themselves to the leaders who are keeping watch over your souls. And the call goes out for all of us from James chapter 4, talking about all of us submitting ourselves, therefore, to God. But not only are we supposed to submit ourselves to authority and leaders, but we're also to be obedient. He says to be obedient. This is, this is a really important thing, and it goes against the grain of the society in Crete. It goes against the grain for us today. The opposite of being an obedient person is being a rebellious person. And Samuel said to Saul when he disobeyed in offering the sacrifice, he said, rebellion is equivalent to what? To witchcraft. Be obedient. He says, be ready for every good work. And I think, as I said earlier, this is a mention of legitimately good deeds. Not in your own strength, not to conjure up salvation, but it's wrought about, it's good deeds wrought about by the Holy Spirit as evidence of your faith, 
in hope that the gospel would, will move forward because of them. It's not a checklist, and it all flows to the grid of regeneration. But you know what? This says something about our hermeneutic, too, how we study the Bible. Because the, there's not some secret code here. The Scriptures were written to everyday, common, ordinary people. It wasn't written to theologians. And there's some secret code that we have to decipher here. I think the Cretan people would have understood this exhortation in a straightforward fashion. Be ready for every good work. That's simple. Speak evil of no one. Speak evil of no one. Paul here is helping us. He's exhorting us to maintain peace and exhorting us in the building of our friendships because we are prone to speak evil of other people. We're prone to badmouth other people. We're prone to run other people down. We're prone to speak evil of one another. And one of the things that the Lord says He hates in Proverbs 6 is a person who sows discord among brothers. In 2 Corinthians 12, you can feel the passion in Paul's writing when he says, For I fear that perhaps when I come to you, I won't find you as I wish, and you won't find me as you wish. Because I'm afraid when I come to you that I'm going to find quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Speaking evil of one another is a big deal. It's a big deal. He says to avoid quarreling. Look, don't be a contentious person. Don't be a brawler. Don't be a fighter. Don't be someone who's constantly arguing. But he says instead, be gentle. And he takes his cue from our Savior and Lord Jesus, who in Matthew 11, what did he say? He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Paul follows his cue in 2 Corinthians 10 when he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and what? Gentleness of Christ. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We should even be gentle when we're correcting someone who's wrong, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. 2 Timothy 2, Galatians 6. Galatians 5 says it's a fruit of the Spirit. And it's with this attribute that we bear with one another in gentleness. So we should be gentle. We should show perfect courtesy towards all people. We should be a body of believers that go out of our way to be courteous and meek and kind and considerate to all men. And this, this behavior extends beyond just the people that we like. Right? It goes out to all men. And that's more difficult. Yeah, that is easy to stand up here and say that, but that becomes a difficult thing when you're out there. And it's completely impossible apart from regeneration. So remember, Church at Crete, remember Grace Fellowship. Your good works act as evidence of your faith in Christ, and it advances the gospel. Now the second principle is gleaned from verse 3 which says, and the principle is this, your past evil deeds provide evidence of your wickedness and therefore God's mercy. What does he say? He has a list here of words. We were once foolish, past tense. 
We were once disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were passing our days in malice and envy. The idea here with malice, the intent to hurt someone in a mean, vicious sort of way. He also makes reference there to the fact that it was evidently a way of passing our days. It was a consistent behavior, consistent pattern of behavior. It was a daily thing. It was a way of life. We were hated by others and hating one another. Broken relationships characterize the unregenerate person. Broken relationships characterize the unregenerate person. You know, and this is a good thing. This verse 3 is really a good thing to bring up because Paul often reminded his people of where he had come from. And he encourages us, I believe, by this to remember where you came from. What does it do for us? It keeps you humble. It gives you hope for the lost people around you. Paul's battle cry was, I'm the chief of sinners. So this verse sums up the ongoing character of the lost person. So if you're a regenerate person, your past evil deeds provide evidence of your wickedness and therefore God's mercy. Now our third principle is the most encouraging of the three and it provides a solid foundation for our soteriology or our doctrine of salvation. And that's to realize that you did absolutely nothing to obtain your salvation. You did absolutely nothing to obtain your salvation. I love the transition that Paul makes there in verse 4. He had just got through saying all those things. We were passing our days in malice and envy. We were hated by others and hating one another. But, but God. There's that transition there. We were all those things, but... We were completely wicked in every way, but God's goodness and loving kindness appeared anyway. Apart from my sin, He pursued us. So what does it mean that the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared? There's the two words there that we want to look at. The first is the word goodness, and it's the Greek word krestotes, meaning kindness or goodness meaning that God is by nature good in everything He does. And in some ways, you know, you could even possibly think of it in terms of that His, that his goodness precedes His love. His love flows out of His goodness. And then the ESV idea of loving kindness coming from the Greek word philanthropia, from where we get our word, Philanthropy, but it's God's love of humanity. And it's not a common word for the love of God in the New Testament. In fact, this is the only place that it appears in this way. But God loves humanity. You know, and you think about it, the fact, you know, from the Tim Keller study that we did this past semester in in our home Bible fellowship, what he said about this was just so awesome. He said that. God didn't need us because He was completely fulfilled in Himself. The self-glorifying nature of the Trinity was completely sufficient for God. But He created us so that we could be a part of that, of that self-glorifying nature of the Trinity, so that 
God is just the greatest philanthropist. He loves humanity. So, how did this goodness and loving kindness appear? That's the question. How did it appear? Well, it appeared in the historic, literal, perfect, and sinless God-man, Jesus Christ. This goodness and kindness that we see in verse 4 appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. The historical person of Jesus Christ. Not just a myth. So we move on to verse 5. And we have the question immediately, why did He save us? And it tells us that immediately. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but what? According to His own mercy. If you are a regenerate person, you are regenerate, you are saved because of His mercy, not because of anything that you did. We didn't deserve it in any way. He pursued us from a point of complete deadness, from a a point where we were in complete darkness. We were totally unable to save ourselves. And it says that He appeared to us. And He saved us according to His mercy. You know, how does that make you feel? That God saved you according to His own mercy. Does that does that move you at all? And I hope this doesn't sound preachy or, or churchy because I don't want it to. I, I, want, I want you to think, does it move you? Does it do something inside of you to know that He saved you because of His mercy? I pray that it doesn't make us arrogant. I pray it doesn't. I pray it has the opposite effect and I pray that it humbles us And that when you really ponder that, if you ever really sit and and ponder that, that it brings you to a point of complete thankfulness for His mercy. It should bring us to a point of just utter worship. That He saved us because of His mercy. Why did He save us? He saved us because of His mercy. How did He save us? He saved us through the washing of regeneration. He saved us through the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Aaron, thank you for saying that while ago. Before your prayer, I agree completely. I think these ideas point to the same thing. The washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Look at John 3, 5. It's, it's, it's up here. This is what Jesus said. Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I think Titus 3 and John 3 point to the same idea. It's that washing. It's the renewal of the Spirit. Born of water and the Spirit. I think they're pointing to the same idea and I think they're going back even further to Ezekiel 36. If you'll bring that up here, Ezekiel 36. I think they're pointing to this. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now, this is it right here. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. You see the cleansing there? In fact, he says it at the end of 26. I will cleanse you. Then in 26, he says, I will give you a new heart, 
a new spirit I will put in you. You see those two ideas again? The renewal of the spirit, the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, right? John 3, born of what? Water and the spirit. They're pointing back to the cleansing. They're pointing back to the new spirit that's in you. The washing and renewal both correlate, in my opinion, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not literal water baptism. What does he say in Mark 1? Verses 4, 7, and 8. It says that John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Listen to this. I've baptized you with water, but he who will baptize, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the point here is that John baptized with water for the remission of sins, but Jesus would come later and baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, whether or not John understood water baptism to be salvific in any way, I don't know. But I do know that a proper understanding of Jesus' ministry is wrapped up in regeneration and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which occurs at salvation and is completely sufficient for the remission of sins. Now, there may be subsequent fillings of the Holy Spirit, but baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at salvation. This understanding of the baptism of the Spirit seems to be what Apollos misunderstood or just didn't have a complete understanding of in Acts 18. And it says there, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, get this, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now I also make this connection of this concerning Apollos because in the very next chapter, very next verse, starts the next chapter, and it's where Paul's meeting up with the guys uh, uh, in Ephesus. He's traveling through Ephesus, and he meets up with these disciples. Here's what it says. And it, came, and, it, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what were you baptized then? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So to sum up, we ask the question, how are we saved? We're saved by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And I believe these two things constitute one act, and that one act is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But as we've just said, that these two things point to the same work. That's the transforming, the cleansing, the washing, the renewing work of the Holy Spirit poured out richly through Jesus Christ. I love the way that Paul brings in the Trinity here. And that happens in the inner man, apart from our works in any way. But Paul hasn't finished his thought yet. It's not complete because he moves on to talk about justification. The question here is, what does it mean that we're justified by His grace? Justification is a legal term. 
It's a declaration by God whereby we're declared righteous solely on our basis of Christ's death and His perfect obedience, not ours. Now, I don't know that this is a comprehensive uh, definition. I I didn't mean for it to be that way. We're going to talk more about this, and maybe it'll give us more of a comprehensive idea. But his His righteousness, based on His perfect obedience and His death, is now imputed or reckoned or bestowed to believers based on nothing that they did or ever will do. Justification says this, My sin was put on Jesus Christ on the cross. He bore that. And in return, He puts His righteousness on me. That's justification. It says that my sin was put on Jesus Christ and His righteousness was put on me. The imputed righteousness of Christ says something about the nature of the cross, that the cross didn't just make men savable, but it actually procured salvation for the believer, for the person who is in Christ. If you're in Christ, His death didn't just wipe away your sins, bringing you to a negative balance or to a zero balance. And it's up to you to work the rest of it in a positive direction. His work on the cross actually gave you a positive righteousness. Imputing, reckoning, or declaring you righteousness. Declaring you righteous based on what He did. What He did on your behalf so that you could be an heir according to the hope of Jesus Christ. And why did He do it? I love this. Why did He do it? Did you notice in Ezekiel 36 how He, how he kept saying, I'm doing this for my name's sake, for my own glory. That's why He does all things for His glory. It's the basis of everything that God does. So what does it mean to you? It means today that you can find rest in this totally alien righteousness that comes from without to invade regenerate and renew. You can claim that and it renews us from within. That's the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's justification. So, stop working and start abiding. Abide in Christ. Let Him work through you and bring about wonderful deeds brought about by His Spirit And for His name's sake alone, for His glory alone, stop working and start abiding in Him. You who are in Christ, I know so many of you struggle with this. When you stand in the mire of guilt and legalism, understand that Christ died on your behalf. You're justified by His grace. You're justified in Christ. He lived the perfect life that you can't. And He freely gives that to you. The truth is, I mean, what are our good works anyway? What does it say about our good works? It says there is filthy rags. So all we do is cling to Him. And if you're unregenerate today, that's my, that's my hope for you. That's my challenge for you. That's my exhortation to you is that you cling to Christ. That you cling to the cross. 
that you cry out for God to save you, not based on your righteousness, but His righteousness alone.